This is an ABC Radio National podcast. For full details, abc.net.au slash rn. Welcoming you to the Boyer Lectures for 2006, the pinnacle of the Big Ideas Year. Each year, the ABC invites a prominent Australian to express his or her thoughts on a major topic. This is the 48th Boyer Lecture to be broadcast on ABC Radio National. The lectures are named after the late Sir Richard Boyer, who, as chairman of the ABC, had been one of those responsible for their introduction. Now, this year, the focus is economics, and more specifically, how macroeconomics has and can be used to achieve stability. The lectures are in fact titled The Search for Stability and the author is none other than the outgoing Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Ian McFarlane. For the past 10 years he's been in charge of the levers guiding monetary policy and among other things that means setting interest rates and so determining for many of us what we pay to keep the mortgage ticking over from month to month. Ian McFarlane is an economist by training. He's a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia and a frequent speaker and writer on economic subjects. Prior to joining the RBA, he worked at Monash University, at Oxford University and at the OECD in Paris. The six lectures he's written for this year's series take us through the swings and roundabouts that developed economies, including Australia's, have endured in the 60 years since the end of World War II. The search for stability traces the emergence of Keynesian economics in the period immediately after the war, through the post-war boom, the oil shocks and then the stagflation of the 1970s, and the reforms and deregulation of the 1980s and 90s. Finally, Ian McFarlane will offer some insights into the record period of growth that's underpinned the Australian economy for the past 15 years, and he outlines the challenges in keeping that growth ticking over. This first lecture is called The Golden Age. Here's our 2006 Boyer lecturer, Ian McFarlane. In the nearly 50 years in which the Boyer lectures have been delivered, this year's will be the sixth on an economic topic. That strikes me as giving economics a reasonable weight in the totality of human affairs. If you judged by what the editors of our daily newspapers choose, you would expect to see it given a greater weight so much of our news is dominated by reports on interest rates, unemployment, inflation, the balance of payments, the growth of domestic product, and so on. I hope in the course of these lectures that I can help people understand the important historical and intellectual developments that lie behind the mass of monthly and quarterly information and assist them to see the wood for the trees. I have chosen The Search for Stability as the title of my lectures because I want to deal specifically with macroeconomics, the question of how we can keep the economy on a reasonably stable growth path. While there are disagreements about many aspects of economics, such as those dealing with efficiency, income distribution, or the role of the market versus the role of the state, 
I think there is widespread agreement across the political spectrum that stability is a good thing. Economically, the first half of the 20th century was disfigured by the Great Depression of the 1930s, and the second half by the high inflation of the 1970s. No one wants a repeat of these episodes, nor of some of the other disruptions that have marked the past 60 years. To some, the word stability sounds unexciting, and probably more so if I use the term economic stability. But stability is not just an economic concept. It has a profound impact on the lives of people. Instability can create havoc, damage institutions, and leave a legacy from which some families and nations will take many years to recover. For example, the rise of Nazism in Germany was helped by the preceding Weimar hyperinflation. Fortunately, in Australia we have had nothing like that, but the effects of the Depression left scars that lasted for lifetimes. Likewise, the effects of the big rise in unemployment and inflation in the 1970s have not fully passed out of our economy. At the same time as we seek stability, there is a recognition that economies cannot be made to grow at a perfectly constant rate. There is an element of cyclicality in economies, just as there is in the growth paths of many complex systems in the physical and biological world, such as weather patterns or animal populations. History shows that economies have exhibited a pronounced but irregular business cycle and that this cycle tends to be coordinated across countries. In what follows, we will see that virtually all developed countries had recessions in the mid-1970s, early 1980s and early 1990s, and many did so again in 2001. Similarly, all countries had serious inflation problems in the 1970s and many still in the 1980s. And of course, the Great Depression of the 1930s affected all countries virtually simultaneously. Increasingly, globalisation may now play a bigger role, but the international propagation of business cycles was already part of the world economy a hundred years ago. The search for stability is about the best means of conducting demand management policy so as to minimise the disruptive effects of these fluctuations. Demand management policy is the term used to describe the major instruments of macroeconomic policy, fiscal policy and monetary policy. Fiscal policy refers to changes in government expenditure and taxation and is often summarised by the budget surplus or deficit. Monetary policy is concerned with the quantity and price of money and credit and increasingly is summarised by the level of interest rates. Over the period covered by these lectures, the balance between the two policies gradually shifted with monetary policy becoming more important in the second half of the period. But the search for economic stability is also about other policies at times, such as how the exchange rate is set, how wages are determined, or how the banks are regulated. As we will see, the optimal mix of policies is not easy to achieve, and some of the earlier solutions that we thought had resolved the problem not only turned out to be wrong, but actually made the situation worse. We think we have finally arrived at an answer to the question, but history suggests that we should remain modest because in time we may face a new set of challenges which will require a new set of answers, a subject to which I will return in later lectures. I will start my account of the search for stability by setting it in the quarter century immediately after World War II, a period termed by the economic historian Angus Madison, the Golden Age. 
It was a period of rapid economic growth for the developed world, much faster than had ever been experienced before or since. Viewed against the span of human history, economic growth is a relatively new phenomenon, dating only from the Industrial Revolution in the mid-18th century. In the many centuries prior to that, it had been negligible. Reasonable statistics are also a recent development, but Madison was able to calculate that the developed world economy grew by about 5% per annum between 1950 and 1973, more than double the 2.3% per annum recorded in the 80 years to 1950. Since 1973, average growth has moved back to about 2.8% per annum. Because of the strong growth, the golden age was a period of low unemployment, it was also a period where all the developed countries experienced low inflation at quite similar rates. Many people look back on it nostalgically and wonder why it could not have continued indefinitely. In Australia, the golden age is chiefly remembered for the low unemployment that prevailed for almost all of the period. Using the current method of measuring unemployment, the rate averaged 2% over the entire period with the only spike being at the time of the 1961 credit squeeze when it rose briefly to 3.9%. In the second half of the 60s, it did not rise above 2% at any stage. The results for inflation were equally as good. Over the whole period, inflation averaged 4.6% per annum, but this average was pushed up by the two years of the Korean War boom when it reached over 20%. If we take this temporary event out of the figures, the average becomes 3.3%. Overall, it is fair to characterise the period as being one where most of the time the unemployment rate was about 2% and the inflation rate about 3%, but with the latter figure rising noticeably towards the end. By the mid-1960s, 20 years into the Golden Age, there was a widespread belief that we had solved the macroeconomic problem and found the way to overcome the instability of the modern capitalist economy. Up to and including the depression of the 1930s, this instability had been accepted as a fact of life, but now the solution seemed to have been found. It was at this stage, that is in the mid-1960s, that I decided to study economics. There was an enormous feeling of confidence in the economics profession at this time, and young undergraduates were attracted in large number. There was also a sense of idealism. It was felt that with the problems of the developed countries largely solved, it would be easy to apply the same prescription to lift the developing countries out of poverty. What was the solution to the macroeconomic problem? The answer was Keynesian economics, a policy framework whereby the government ensures that aggregate demand is kept high enough to maintain full employment. That is, the government undertakes active demand management relying on fiscal and monetary policy, but during this period chiefly the former. This entails being prepared to run fiscal deficits if private demand is weak, and recognising that in deflationary conditions such as during the Depression, monetary policy may become ineffective. In the general theory of employment, interest and money, first published in 1936, Keynes had provided an explanation of the Depression and a policy prescription on how to overcome it and prevent a recurrence. His prescription was to use government spending to make up for the deficiency in private spending and thereby move the economy back to full employment. It seemed natural to apply the same prescription to running an economy in normal times, 
and so progressively this was put in place in most developed countries and the results were remarkably successful. I will digress for a moment to say a few words about Keynes. John Maynard Keynes was one of the most remarkable men of the 20th century. Bertrand Russell said that Keynes's was the sharpest and clearest intellect that I have ever known. When I argued with him, I felt that I took my life into my hands and I seldom emerged without feeling something of a fool. As well as being an economist, Keynes was a logician, writer, aesthete, art collector, bibliophile, prominent member of the Bloomsbury set, international statesman, arts administrator, company director and speculator in the equity and commodity markets. He possessed the rare, if not unique, distinction of having a mind that was fully developed intellectually, artistically and commercially. I mention this only to point out that Keynesian economics was not the product of some academic scribbler, but of someone of the broadest worldly experience, as well as the highest intellect. His ideas were attractive not only to economists, but to politicians, journalists, business people and the wider community. They were quickly taken up in government policies. In Australia, two of the first actions by the Chifley government after the war were to issue the White Paper on Full Employment in Australia and to pass the Commonwealth Bank Act of 1945. This act gave the central bank a three-part mandate, one of which was the maintenance of full employment in Australia. Similar changes in the focus of policy occurred in a number of other countries. Internationally, two important institutions, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the World Bank, were set up at about this time. It may be difficult for recent generations to appreciate, but this whole international venture was undertaken for the most idealistic and public-spirited of reasons. It was an exercise in international cooperation designed to ensure that after the war, the world did not degenerate into the isolationism and beggar-thy-neighbour policy-making that had characterised the previous 20 years and contributed so much to the depth of the Depression and to World War II. The conference where the IMF and the World Bank were set up was held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and the international financial framework that resulted was called the Bretton Woods System. Its centrepiece was a system of fixed exchange rates which lasted for about a quarter of a century, roughly the same era as the Golden Age. The system of fixed exchange rates contributed to the growth of international trade, but also had a very important consequence for each country's monetary policy. Since all countries fixed their exchange rate to the US dollar, they had to maintain a monetary policy that kept their inflation, and to a lesser extent, their economic growth, in a corridor that was consistent with what was happening in the United States. If it deviated too far, for example if inflation rose too much, the country would lose competitiveness and thus risk having to devalue its currency. In this way, the United States provided a sort of discipline on other countries' monetary policy while the Bretton Woods system lasted. As the developed countries enjoyed their longest period of strong economic growth and full employment, the economic profession was happy to claim a large part of the credit. These two initiatives, Keynesian demand management in domestic policy and the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates in international payments, were seen as the key to this improved performance. But were they the whole explanation for the improvement and thus capable of maintaining the better economic performance indefinitely, or were there other 
possibly equally important factors at work. Clearly there are other factors at work, some of which were extremely important. In identifying these, it is important to ignore factors that only apply to an individual country and seek those that apply more broadly and hence can explain the improved economic performance of all countries in the developed world. First, it was the period of post-war reconstruction. There was a big gap to be made up following the Great Depression and the Second World War. In both these periods, there had been little fixed capital formation occurring for years other than that devoted to the war effort. There was also a great shortage of housing and public infrastructure. As a general principle, it is easiest to grow quickly when you are coming off a temporarily low base. Thus the largest pickup in growth occurred in the countries most devastated by the war, such as Germany, Japan, Italy and Austria, and the least pronounced, although still significant, in the United States, Canada, Switzerland, Sweden and Australia. Second, although the community and government were eager for economic growth, there was widespread restraint in economic behaviour. The privations endured during the Depression and the war meant that as incomes rose, a high proportion was saved. Inflationary expectations too had been conditioned by decades of nearly zero inflation, which showed up in moderate pricing and wage-setting behaviour for much of the period. These conditions for a time made it easier for economies to grow without generating the inflation that stifled growth later on. Third, international trade was liberalised by reductions in tariffs and quotas, and so imports and exports grew quickly. This was in sharp contrast to the interwar period. Madison says, Perhaps the least controversial assertion one can make about the Golden Age is that it involved a remarkable revival in liberalism in international transactions. Trade and payments barriers erected in the 1930s and during the war were removed. The new style liberalism was buttressed by effective arrangements for articulate and regular consultation between Western countries and for mutual financial assistance. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, now called the World Trade Organisation, also played an important role. In weighing up the importance of the various policy and non-policy factors contributing to improved performance, we also have to ask just how radical a change was there in the way domestic economic policy was conducted. There is no doubt that immediately after the war, the focus of policy changed, with the framework becoming explicitly Keynesian, and a great deal more emphasis being placed on the attainment of full employment. And these changes were at least as marked in Australia as in any other country. But an examination of the actual practice of implementing these policies in Australia shows that it was not characterised by a high degree of activism, that is, by choosing extremely expansionary settings of policy. At least for most of the period, fiscal policy was quite restrained. On average, the budget was in surplus, and deviations from the average were not large. The big budget deficits did not start until the 1970s. Similarly, government outlays as a percentage of GDP averaged about 21%, whereas in the 1970s and 1980s they were around 30%. While monetary policy was not pursued with much vigour, the various forms of credit rationing meant that the annual growth of the money supply was mostly in the 5-10% to range, again much lower than it became in the 1970s. Those of you who remember the difficulty of obtaining a home loan in the 1960s will know what the term credit rationing means. I mentioned this policy restraint because some later commentators 
have characterised the economic policy of the 1950s and 1960s as being activist and very expansionary. It did become so later in the period, but for most of the time it was not. Some of the older generation still remember the Fadden horror budget of 1951-52 and the credit squeeze of 1961, which nearly cost the Menzies government office. Policymakers and their political masters were clearly prepared to take tough and unpopular economic actions in this period if they thought it necessary for the longer-run health of the economy. I realise, looking back at what I have said, that I could be accused of over-glamorising the 1950s and 1960s. To remedy this impression, I want to bring up two other considerations. First, Australia did not stand out at this time in comparison with other countries. While in absolute terms our performance was good, we did not grow as fast as the OECD average. In the era before the Golden Age, that is, the 80 years prior to 1950, our average growth rate of 2.9% exceeded the OECD average of 2.3%. But in the period from 1950 to 1973, we slightly underperformed, growing at an average of 4.7% compared with the OECD average of 4.9%. A close examination shows that the main reason we got so close to the OECD average was that our population and workforce grew much faster than in other countries. This was, of course, the period of the great post-war immigration programs. If we take out the effects of our faster population growth by looking at the growth in GDP per capita, the underperformance by Australia is more apparent. In the 1950s, GDP per capita in Australia rose by 1.7% per annum compared with 3.3% in the OECD area. In the 1960s we did better, with GDP per capita rising by 3.2% per annum but still a little lower than the 3.9% for the OECD area. Geoffrey Blaney, in his 2001 Boyer Lectures, reminded us that the Golden Age was a period of relative agricultural prosperity compared with later years, which makes our aggregate underperformance more disappointing. The growth of GDP per capita is largely determined by the growth of labour productivity, that is GDP per employee. We can conclude, therefore, that Australia's productivity performance in the Golden Age was not up to the average of the OECD standard. This is a significant conclusion and throws light on the motivation for a number of policy initiatives in Australia in the 1980s and 1990s. The second qualifying remark to be made when we look back at the 1950s and 1960s is to remember that although we may call it the Golden Age, it was hardly a Gilded Age. We were a lot poorer then than we are now. For a lot of people, nostalgia casts a very flattering light on economic conditions. But the great urban expansion of the immediate post-war period, where most of the growth occurred, was very primitive by today's standards. Hundreds of thousands of families moved into newly constructed housing where the streets were not paved, footpaths non-existent, sewage not connected and telephones unavailable. The two or three bedroom cottage with an outdoor toilet was the norm at least in the outer suburbs of Melbourne where I was brought up in the 1950s. In many cases, schools were in temporary accommodation and there were very few universities. We tend to forget how rough it was. In some ways, it resembled the developing world more than the developed world of today. Nevertheless, the macroeconomic performance in absolute terms was undoubtedly excellent and nothing we can say can take that away. No wonder most of the economists of the time were so confident about the future.
Let me finish this lecture with a quote from Arthur Oaken, the highly respected professor of economics from Yale University, who had been chairman of the US Council of Economic Advisers under President Johnson. Looking back on some earlier remarks by Johnson, Oaken wrote in 1970, quote, In 1965, President Johnson was making a controversial statement when he said, I do not believe recessions are inevitable. That statement is no longer controversial. Recessions are now generally considered to be fundamentally preventable, like airplane crashes and unlike hurricanes, unquote. So, as far back as 1970, there were economists who thought that the business cycle was dead and that we had the techniques available to ensure that there would be no more recessions. In fact, as we will see in the next lecture, this optimism was short-lived and recessions continued to occur in each of the following decades. Ian McFarlane with The Golden Age, the first of his Boyer lectures, offering a supportant of what's to come in his lectures and in our economies. The series is entitled The Search for Stability, and over the next five weeks he'll take us through the peaks and troughs as experienced by the world's developed economies in the 60 tumultuous years since the end of World War II. The Boyer lectures are produced by Scott Wales with technical production by Jennifer Parsonage. And the music is Ian McFarlane's selection. It's From the Planets by Holst with the movement Jupiter. ABC Radio National. More than 60 programs, more than 260 transmitters Australia-wide. And we're live on the net as well as media on demand streams. Find out how to get more out of Radio National. Go to abc.net.au slash rn. And for the full list of MP3 and podcast programs, abc.net.au slash rn slash podcast.